Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. Is Christianity dying? Learn the biblical perspective in our study of Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. We're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, and read through chapter 8, verse 4. Acts 7, beginning in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. In our last study, Luke describes one of the most remarkable and thrilling events in the history of the world, an amazing demonstration of the redeeming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the victory of Christ's heavenly rule over the earth when a disciple of Jesus was struck down by the servants of the devil, but in his death manifest the express image of the character of Christ. We might say that in this incident, the seed of the serpent struck him down. But Satan was crushed beneath his feet by his union with the Messiah, to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. That disciple was Stephen, the deacon, the minister of mercy, the evangelist, the preacher of the gospel, and the martyr, the witness of the faith and the true power of Jesus to accomplish his work in the life of a sinner. Stephen became a monument to the success of the kingdom of heaven on the landscape of history that could never be removed or torn down. But as we examined the grim and terrible record of his murder, we passed over a certain statement in chapter 7, verse 58. The Bible says that during the bloody work of killing Stephen, the witnesses those false accusers who had been hired to testify lies against him, but whose task it was to throw the first stones, 
laid down their clothes. They removed their flowing robes to free their arms and prevent them from being soiled by his blood. And they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now Luke gives no biography or background of Saul at this point. And we might wonder if he had some literary purpose in that. Perhaps he wanted to simply emphasize one particular thing about Saul and reveal other details later. But likely, his reason for giving no introduction was simply that Saul needed none. At the time when the book of Acts was written, Saul was called the Apostle Paul, and he was probably the most famous Christian on earth. His story from his own testimony, as recorded in his letters, had circulated throughout the world, and he would have certainly been no stranger to Theophilus or any other believer. At this time, he was called Saul of Tarsus, from the region of Cilicia. Now we may remember that the synagogue of the freedmen from whom Stephen's enemies arose included Cilicians, and likely among them, Saul himself. Many scholars label Saul a Hellenist Jew living in Palestine, like Stephen. I think the late Theodor Zahn, the great conservative New Testament scholar of Germany, made a compelling case that Saul was, in fact, a Hebrew Jew whose family had relocated to Asia but did not actually Hellenize in the full sense of the term. Now, if that's right, if Saul was culturally considered a Hebrew Jew, but because of his national upbringing, he had close fraternity with the Hellenists and an understanding of their proclivities and dispositions, he was perhaps the most cosmopolitan man in all of Israel during his lifetime, better suited to exert an influence among all the Jews throughout the whole world than any other man. His impressive credentials continue. He was a Pharisee, says Philippians 3 and verse 5, who by the theological standards of most Jews in those days had attained righteousness or justification before God by his loyalty to and zeal for the law of Moses, Philippians 3 and verse 6. Later, After being educated by Jesus Christ, he will realize that his old views about justification were wrong. But at this point, both he and his countrymen would have described him as a sterling example of a faithful Jew. He described his own young life in Galatians 1.14 in these words, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Perhaps through his zeal or by virtue of his natural abilities or a combination of the two, he became a prized student of the legendary Rabbi Gamaliel, who we read about earlier in Acts chapter 5, and we find reference to this in Acts 22 and verse 3. We met him at the trial of the apostles, but it's interesting that Gamaliel is not mentioned here. He was not dead, But perhaps his attitude toward the Christians had become more hostile since they had begun to encroach on the territory of the Pharisee sect and not the Sadducees only. When Luke introduces Saul, he begins a series of contrasts between him and Stephen. First, there was a contrast in position. When Luke says they were laying their clothes at the feet of Saul— You may well remember this sort of expression from earlier in the book of Acts when the Christians 
would bring their financial gifts for the care of the poor and lay them at the apostles' feet. That is, they would entrust the gifts to the apostles for their authoritative distribution. Likely the same kind of meaning is in view here. Saul is called a young man to identify him as in the prime of life. Perhaps he was about 40 years or maybe a little bit older, a little bit younger than that. But he stepped forth to preside over the execution of Stephen and to offer his position among the Jews as a Roman citizen as collateral if any objection could be brought against them for killing Stephen. But as Saul is depicted as the president of the execution, Stephen appears as a priest seeking mercy on behalf of his executioners, praying for them. Second, there was a contrast in the petition of these two men. Stephen, the Bible says, was praying to Jesus, showing boldly that he recognized Jesus is God the Son. And he was praying for the salvation of the lost. But Luke says that Saul was consenting to his death. Chapter 8 and verse 1, literally, he was in hearty agreement and offering his approval and his encouragement to the slaughter, as the living oracle says. Perhaps he was shouting blessings to the murderers from the sidelines as they hurled their missiles of death at Brother Stephen. He was like those who Jesus foretold, who would kill his disciples and thought they were offering God's service in the action. John 16 and verse 2. Though Saul himself did not throw a stone, he bore the guilt of the evil deed, as he himself recollected in Acts 22 and verse 20. Please remember, friends, when you encourage and support an evil deed, you are a partaker of it and in it. When you spread a lie or a slanderous attack, you share in the guilt of the one who created it and you contribute to the murder of the character assassinated by it. Finally, there is a contrast in the procession of these men. Stephen fell asleep, the Bible says. He died. And we trust fully that Jesus, who stood to honor him, fulfilled his prayer and sent down the angels to receive his spirit and usher him into paradise to await the final and absolute stage of victory in the resurrection. Acts 8 and verse 2 says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. In his death, Stephen bore a striking resemblance to Jesus. And now again in his burial, when Jesus died, his body was taken down from the cross by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And this passage talks about devout men. Likely this also refers to Jewish men who were not Christians, but who had been utterly struck by Stephen's unimpeachable innocence, his unassailable wisdom, and his indescribable piety, even to the end. They made great lamentation over him. It is true that extreme displays of mourning and weeping at funerals were customary among the Jews at that time, but in this case, I think the meaning is something more genuine and more spiritual. The righteous and the noble lamented. They wept and moaned and cried over the death of Stephen because of what it seemed to represent. 
These devout men may have heard Stephen's sermons in the synagogue and heard his case before the Sanhedrin and been amazed by the love and the charity being displayed among Christians and the supernatural power being poured out on them. And they may have been thinking and saying among themselves, like those on the Emmaus Road, we were hoping that it was this Jesus, who they've been preaching about, who was going to redeem Israel. Of course, Jesus had died, and that seemed terribly unmessianic. But then they said he had risen and was alive again. They said that the miracles they worked were by his power and faith in his name. They said he had poured out the Spirit and inaugurated the last days, the age of heaven on earth, and we were just about to believe it. But now, here they are, dying too. And so they wept that the hope of Israel was dashed again. And their lamentation seemed justified by what happened next, verses 1 through 3. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. What Luke calls a great persecution is described in the next two chapters with more detail. It involved suffering, imprisonment, the confiscation of goods and property, and in many cases, death. The tide is shifting. The prosperity and joy and fellowship, the blessing that characterized the saints is set fire and assaulted, and the believers begin to dissipate and to scatter. Now, it must be noted that when Luke says this persecution was against the church which was at Jerusalem, it is another case where the phrase the church which was at Jerusalem does not seem to refer to a particular congregation or to all the believers in that city. In this case, it seems that the aggression was continued by the Hellenist Jews who incited the persecution of Stephen, and it was focused now against all Hellenist Christians. These are the ones who we find scattering abroad in the subsequent chapters. But Luke specifies that the apostles were not scattered, and evidently, this was because they were not targeted in the persecution, which would make sense because they were not Hellenists. They were Judean Jews. All the same, we can picture a terrible upheaval in the community of the believers there in Jerusalem. Those happy men and women who had been baptized and had continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the loaf and the prayers those who had eaten together from house to house and spent time every day in the temple telling people about Jesus the Christ, those who never had any needs because of their supernaturally sacrificial and benevolent love for one another, those who had been touched by the miraculous power and protection of God against all threats and oppositions were now scattered, pushed out of the city, some congregations would have completely disbanded as their members fled for safety. Others tried to stay behind and cling to the way things had been. But verse 3 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. The word means that he attacked the Christians like a wild beast attacking its prey, entering every house, likely the houses where he learned Christians were known to meet for worship. 
and likely choosing to strike on the first day of the week when he learned they would consistently be assembling, and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. It was unusual to target women as well as men, and it demonstrated the level of bitter hatred against the Christian movement. They dragged them off like animals to be thrown in prison. But remember, in that society, prison was not a sentence, simply a holding cell for a trial. And if the trials of these Christians were like that of Jesus or Stephen, their end was likely death. So, no wonder there was a lamentation. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, but he died. They said he was alive again, but they died too. Does this scene look familiar? This strange, disappointing paradox in which the kingdom of darkness seems to be triumphing over the kingdom of heaven? It is not merely something we read about in Acts chapter 8. We see it all around us. Today, there are devout people who supposed that perhaps Christ was the answer, but suddenly it seems that evil is winning. So they weep and lament, and they take their Bibles and churches and faith to be buried in despair while the world burns around them. The church today seems to be absolutely overtaken by a theology that is, in my estimation, completely unscriptural and antagonistic to the teachings of the Bible. I do not say that lightly, but I believe it is a serious problem. The error centers around the subject of eschatology, the doctrine of the future, of end times, and especially the destiny of the church and the reign of Jesus Christ in this world. I will admit here that I do not hold to the historic theological position known as premillennialism in any of its forms. It claims that Jesus will return and then set up an earthly kingdom to rule the world in prosperity and righteousness. I believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is ruling the earth from heaven now. We have already studied a number of passages in Acts that teach just that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 23-26, the Apostle Paul teaches what the Apostle Peter taught in Acts 2, that the reign of Christ began when he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And Paul says he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And death will be defeated at his coming. And then, Paul says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So I do not believe that Jesus comes and then the kingdom begins. The kingdom began at his ascension. And his returning will mark the end. But what will happen between now and then? Particularly, what will happen with the church? The most popular, almost universal belief in the churches of Christ and in many other religious groups who agree that the kingdom is here is what we might call appropriately an eschatology of despair. 
an eschatology of lamentation. The view seems to be that the church and the reign of Jesus began strong in Jerusalem, and it lasted strong for a little while, but then when persecution came, it all started to take a downward turn, and it's become smaller and weaker and less significant ever since. The future, so many claim, will be marked by a consistent increase in wickedness and a consistent decline in righteousness until all that is left of the church is a little camp of beleaguered believers just about to give up or to be overwhelmed when at last the Lord moves in to snatch them up and set the wicked world on fire and walk away with his faithful few to glory. I do not believe the Bible teaches this. Time does not permit us to give it a thorough examination. I know that those who hold it are, many times, devout people. But if you read the Old Testament prophets, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the teachings of all his holy apostles and inspired men, you will find a very different picture of the future of Christ's kingdom. In Matthew 13, Jesus told a series of parables in which by his own testimony he revealed the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13 and verse 11. Among these were the parables of the sower, the parables of the wheat and the tares, and the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven hidden in the lump of dough. Now, time does not allow us to offer careful exegesis of each of these. Lord willing, we will at some time on this program. But in each parable, Jesus explains four great truths. First, according to the parable of the sower, Christ's kingdom grows through the acceptance of the word of the gospel by honest hearts. When gospel preaching appears to fail, it is not because the gospel has lost any of its power, but because that particular audience did not have receptive hearts. It takes effort to find those who are receptive and that's why Jesus commands his people to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16 and verse 15. Second, according to the parable of the wheat and the tares, the presence of evil and wickedness in this world is not because Christ is not reigning or not accomplishing his work as Messiah. It is because an enemy has done this, according to Matthew 13, 28, in the wisdom and purpose of God, the kingdom of Messiah and the kingdom of Satan coexist in the world. To be sure, they are opposed and in a constant struggle. To be sure, Christ's kingdom is determined to triumph. But the total separation between these two will not take place until the end. Third, according to the parable of the mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven would not start large and get increasingly smaller, but rather it began small and it will grow until it becomes great and fills the whole earth, as Daniel 2 and verse 35 says. What did Paul say in the passage we read a moment ago? He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be defeated is death. How many enemies will Jesus defeat? and put under his feet during the time of his reign. All enemies, death last of all, 
Do you see the picture of the progressive, triumphant growth and expansion of the kingdom and the church of Jesus Christ from something small to something great before the end? This is what the Bible actually teaches. Finally, according to the parable of the leaven, the growth of the kingdom is invisible at least to carnally-minded and worldly-visioned men. It is unnoticed and easily missed by such people. Christ's kingdom expands without violence or war, and as it grows, the borders on the map are not moved. Christ can rule over and in spite of the kings of the earth. He judges between the nations, says Isaiah 2 in verse 4, and he makes peace between their citizens, even as the potentates and earthly dignitaries wage war against one another. Souls are saved, and the world pays no attention. Lives are transformed, and the history books do not even include it as a footnote, but it is happening. And perhaps one day it will be suddenly and marvelously evident that as Jesus predicted, the whole lump is permeated. As the prophets say, the earth shall be full of the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. As somebody might say, well, I just don't believe that. That is not what I see. The church isn't growing. It's shrinking. God and good and right It just is not prevailing. It's being shoved into the margin. The wicked, the evil, the unbelieving, the immoral, the godless, the violent, the liberal, the heartless, the devil is obviously winning. Weep and lament. The good is dead and dying. The end is near. Well, friends, I see what looks like that too. But I choose to believe God. I choose to believe the prophets and the Lord. Back in Jerusalem that day, things looked grim. It looked as though the kingdom of heaven had failed, had taken its downward turn, and the kingdom of darkness was winning. But appearances are often deceiving. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And Acts 8 and verse 4 says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom like no other. The blood of the martyrs waters the seed and makes it grow all the more abundantly. What is the destiny of the church? What will become of her when wicked and powerful men rise up to oppose her and her principles? Do not weep. Do not lament. Do not prepare a funeral for the faith. Turn off the news for a while. Read the book of Acts. Find out the truth and rejoice in the power and the will of the Lord. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
You can contact us at Tulsa Church of Christ at gmail.com or visit Tulsa Church of Christ.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way. While we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey.